It certainly is already a great blessing that we've each been able to enjoy this morning, these terrific hymns that we have sung in adoration and praise of the great name of God, the edification and great sense of uplifting that we've each felt from those songs and the messages and meanings contained in them, and certainly the terrific prayer in which we were able again to beseech God for His continued blessings on our behalf as well as to praise His name for the many good things He already has given us. We are blessed with many visitors today, as well as uh, certainly a good number of our own membership. Though we have several who are sick, we're certainly thankful and grateful for the presence of each and every one today. We wish to invite each one, of course, to all of our services. Tonight at the 5.30 hour, Wednesday night at the 7 o'clock hour, come and be with us if at all you can. We certainly hope that the services would be uplifting and encouraging to each of us at every one of our assemblies and meetings. We have been for several Sundays now engaged in a partial series of lessons discerning or discussing the books that are discussed in the Bible Bowl competition this year. Our youngsters are still discussing and studying very intensely the matters for that event some two weeks from yesterday. In fact, in our study, we already have advanced from the book of James all the way through 3 John and today we shall discuss the last of the books that are being studied for the Bible Bowl effort this year. The single book of Jude, the one chapter book, the 26th book in the New Testament. I'd encourage you to turn with me to that one chapter noble book this morning as we look intently at just a few of the dramatic lessons to be gleaned and obtained from a study of that powerful, powerful epistle. Many things could certainly be said about that book. And you and I, needless to say, will only discuss a very brief character of some of those things. But would you notice, just by way of introduction, that the author of the book, who is in fact Jude, begins it in such an interesting fashion in verse 3. Would you read that with me as we proceed to think carefully about the message to be revealed there? Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. By way of introduction, isn't it significant for us to understand that Jude initially had in his mind the character of writing to these interested individuals about the common salvation, the beauty and the power of salvation to the name of Christ. However, it would appear that he received some rather distressing news and at once he changed the character of his letter from that initial idea of the common salvation. For he said, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you would earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. It is a significant matter then to notice that this urgent issue that came before the mind of the gentleman named Jude was of such power and necessity that he devoted his epistle to that subject instead. What is it then about earnestly contending for the faith? We quickly notice that the significant bulk of it addresses false teaching and the possibility of the error that arises when one gives his life over to a following of that which is false. Many have made note that this epistle bears a great resemblance to the second chapter of 2 Peter. Many of the same wordings, the same phrases, in the same order are addressed. We never must we forget that false teaching can lead us to a devil's hell. If we accept that which is not true, it is impossible 
upon believing that to so live our life faithfully in accordance to truth though we're believing false doctrine and pursuing it. Thus Jude warns them and oh how powerfully so he does. The nature of the error of these false teachers and how that one must be on guard against that which they say. Many adjectives, many descriptives might be used for this book. It is brief, admittedly. But nonetheless, upon reading it, one gains an immediate impression of the aggressiveness, the directness. Jude spared no punches, if you will. He laid it out directly and straightforwardly. It is not possible to misunderstand what Jude said. Those who heard it would immediately have known the thrust and focus of the book. Furthermore, we see in this book a host of references to the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament, rather. And in those references, there are valiant lessons to be gleaned. Individuals that are named, circumstances that are presented. To fully grasp the thoroughness of Jude, we must recall to some extent our knowledge of the Old Testament, the things that transpired then. And isn't it also fair to notice that we have the entireness of apostolic authority presented in this epistle. Notice with me, if you would, in verse number 17. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, we can see that those apostles, by virtue of the Lord's promise to them in John 16, 13, they were, in fact, guided into all truth, and as that was revealed... Jude encourages and urges his readers and hearers to also recollect and remember that which those apostles taught, exemplified, and set forth in their teaching. Notice in verses 5 and 6, we see the nature of fallen angels discussed. And that whets our appetite to think more deeply and greatly about the lesson to be gained from those who fell from their habitation and how serious it is that we remain faithful to our own. It is possible for a child of God to depart from the faith and again become lost as he was prior to his obedience to the faith. Notice also in this chapter we have mention of the body of Moses, the one and only time in all the Holy Writ that we have a discussion like what takes place in verse 9 when Michael disputed with the devil concerning the body of the deceased Moses. All of that only leads us to understand that Jude had many things to say, but yet his brevity perhaps leads us to think that there are things that we will have to wait until that great day that we're there in heaven before we have all the answers that we might like to the fullness of this short little book. The contending for the faith, seen as he exhorts his readers to personal carefulness as well as he himself. To say all of that by introduction leads me to say that given all of that, we nonetheless will discuss only one verse in our lesson this morning. If you would, would you turn with me over to verse 16 of this chapter and let us simply see what lessons might be able to be gleaned as we read this interesting little verse. Jude, verse 16, and it's the one that Brother Colonel read for us just a few moments ago. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their own mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. I've taken the liberty, in addition to presenting the King James translation of that text, the New King James translation as well. And certainly as we read it, notice the wording as it appears in many cases very similar, 
But just a bit different as the verse ends. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. As you and I consider that rendering of the text, I suspect much of it will rest more easily upon our hearing and upon our hearts, for much of that language is a bit easier to digest for you and me. That being said, may we look then at four aspects of that text and use that to learn some lessons about bad behaviors. That is to say, behaviors that are not encouraged or condoned in the Word of God, but rather things that we must ever seek to avoid in our own life if we are to be pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. These bad behaviors. Isn't it interesting that the verse begins by noting the word these? Who are the these? Recollect with me that a very central element in the middle section of verses in this book has to do with false teachers. Those that not only believe but proclaim that which is false, not in accordance to the revealed will of God. And hence Jude warns against it. When he says these, he has reference to false teachers. Those who adhere and suggest that which is not true. With that said, let us then notice these are murmurers and complainers. Our first object lesson then for our lesson today has to do with grumblers and complainers. And it has to do with that in a specific way that you and I need to first define it. For after all, it's one thing to grumble and perhaps appreciate a complainer, but we might need to note that those words can have a variety of shades or colors of meaning. These are the meanings of those words translated from the Greek. First of all, the word grumbler, as the New King James translates it, it has to do with one who is dissatisfied with his station or place in life. Furthermore, one who dis discontentedly complains against God. But notice how that is at least a bit different from that other word that Jude employs, that word grumblers. For this one means one who is discontent with life and is constantly blaming and complaining. It may be that as you and I imagine or at least ponder the existence of an individual who simply is able and seemingly often alleges that God is at fault. God, why have you allowed or brought this into my situation or case? It's your fault, God. You could do something about this if you would. That person who with such dissatisfaction and discontentment in regard to his or her place or station in life seems to always have a readiness to complain about something. It would appear that these false teachers had that very mindset and that very set of activities within their life and within their character. But in noting that, let us at the very outset dispel something. It is not at all the case that these references would describe those who, out of effort and work, seek to appreciate that they are not where they'd like to be in life. And rather, they choose to desire, by aspiration and effort, to rise to higher plateaus of service and usefulness. That's not the kind of individual that's being described. These are chronic complainers. Perhaps they are unwilling to invest the effort and the time to improve their lot, they are unwilling to insert or invest that which is needful to improve their circumstance. You see, it's always somebody else that's at fault. It's your fault that I can't do this or that. 
It's someone else's fault why I'm in this case or position. When they never seem to be willing to understand, they are at blame primarily and at fault, and they blame God even. To appreciate that very fact leads us to say, perhaps there's no finer example in all the Holy Scriptures of a circumstance of this than we might see in the very nature of the Old Testament. Consider with me the word murmurers. Now that's the word the King James translation uses. There the third word of verse 16. These are murmurers. Have you ever listened to the word murmur as it is pronounced? Murmur. It seems to describe the very nature and character of what's going on. An individual who has nothing productive to say other than to complain and to lay the blame or the personification of error upon someone other than the rightful one to whom it belongs. And quite often that finger ought to point directly back to the one speaking. Murmurers. How often were the children of Israel described as murmurers? How often did the Holy Spirit choose that word among all others to describe their situation? Return with me briefly to the book of Exodus. As the children of Israel found themselves in the situation of captivity. It was not an easy life. Being captives, they in fact were made to do rigor in the opening part of the book of Exodus. After desiring themselves to in fact go for three days or in fact to be released, the Pharaoh in fact charged them with greater tasks and the taskmasters increased their burdens. The life of the Israelites was one of affliction in that case. It was one of oppression. It was one of great difficulty. And yet with the mighty hand of the God of heaven, He delivered them, not only from Egypt. For consider how He brought that about. First, it was ten dramatically powerful plagues. And following the last one, the Egyptians in fact encouraged and aided them in their departure. However, that wasn't all, for you see, not only did they leave Egypt, there was still the threat of the Egyptian pursuit of them. We learn, though, in chapters 13 and 14, at the very scene of the Red Sea, when that stood before them, they were delivered not only from the physical boundaries of the land of Egypt, but even from the threat of them, because the Egyptians were drowned in pursuing them. There, all in one gigantic stroke, God had delivered this band of slaves, not only from the people who were in fact oppressing them, but into a land of great freedom of their own. You would think maybe that the great blessing of thought would come into their heart. But yet, in the very next chapter, in Exodus 15, verse 24, they complain and they murmur. They are dissatisfied, and on this occasion it has to do with the physical provision of water. Later in Exodus 17, 3, the same thing will occur again. All the while, in the chapter in between, notice we see a pattern forming. Chapters 15 and 17, it was murmuring about water. Chapter 16, it was murmuring about food. We are beginning to see a people who seemingly often, in fact, accused God of their circumstanced position. Why has God brought us out here to starve in this wilderness? Why has God failed to provide us with water for ourselves and our animals? Could they not have trusted in the one who was able to part that Red Sea not many days prior, that he also could provide water from a rock, which he later would do? Could they not provide faith or have faith in the very one? who could bring 12, ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt, 
that he also could provide them with food when they needed it. We see a people who seemed more apt to complain and grumble than to exhibit the necessity of faith and walk according to that which should have been pleasing under the God of heaven. To list these is perhaps to hasten us to list even some other passages. For your thinking, I've also listed Deuteronomy 1, verse 27. On that occasion, they even exhibited a murmuring as it related to the leadership that God exhibited on them through Moses and through Aaron. Earlier in Numbers, we see in chapter 16 and following, one more time, they questioned even Aaron and his priesthood in the leadership. To say all that is to say that this idea of complaining, grumbling, and murmuring in them welled up into an attitude that was not pleasing unto God. They questioned his authority. They questioned the character of where he was leading them and the means by which they would arrive. It was an attitude of distrust. It was an attitude of unthankfulness. Did you notice then in light of that that there are some other passages that should quickly come to our mind? What does the Bible say about complaining and murmuring? Does it list or discuss those topics elsewhere? I would suggest that given God's usage of it in His holy book, we need to be aware of it in our daily walk of life. Consider these passages. In Job 33, verses 12 and following, we notice there that even in the noble book of Job, one of his friends actually made the statement to him that it is not appropriate to strive against God. Thus, to question God and blame Him for one state of affairs when all the while one appears unwilling to extend and appreciate the blessings that He has received exhibits an attitude that is not complete. Another text is Proverbs 19, verse 3, when we see yet one more time the nature of the fact it is wrong to strive against God, to in fact accuse and lay things upon Him, that question his omnipotence and his greatness in every respect. Texts that no doubt come more quickly to our mind, though, are to be found in the heart of the New Testament. How often have you and I contemplated that scene in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10? In fact, you remember it well with me when here the inspired apostle Paul records by way of recollection in history the scene of the children of Israel the very people we've been discussing so far. As he reaches the end of that discussion, he says, Neither murmur ye, as they also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. They in Corinth, we learn from a study of the 16 chapters of that First Corinthian epistle, were also, at least in some, having a mindset of complaining and murmuring, and also of division. Paul said, Neither be murmurers. That is to say, one should more exhibit an attitude of appreciation and gratefulness and thankfulness rather than to always look on the negative side and to complain about what is not and perhaps unwilling to bring about by his or her own efforts. Or what about Philippians 2 verse 14? There again, the same writer in the, name of, in the sense of the Apostle Paul rather directly said that we are to murmur not. Murmur not. A direct commandment, isn't it? As you and I understand those texts, they do lead us then to ask some rather potent questions of ourselves. Am I a chronic complainer? 
Am I one who it seems always is such that I complain and murmur and grumble about things about me, be it individuals or situations, or rather by virtue of mind saying, do I seem to have more thankfulness for the character of what is good and what is noble about myself due to the goodness of God's blessings toward me and try to work upon that which is negative? Isn't it a brightness in our day when we encounter those who, though their circumstances may not be nearly ideal, they nonetheless exhibit a nobility and a thankfulness for what they do have. And they strive to be ever appreciative to God for that. In fact, when we visit others, perhaps those in the hospitals or nursing homes, isn't that sometimes the very attitude of those that we encounter? But also we do see those who really do like to complain, it would seem. May you and I strive to, in fact, not be like these false teachers and always with a complaint on our lips, always with a murmur in our mind, and always with another character of these negative thoughts and bad behaviors in our disposition. What else does Jude have for us in this verse? These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Let us consider that one as well. To walk according to their own lusts. That word in the Greek literally means simply this, to proceed after one's own lusts and passions. These false teachers, amazingly enough, directed their own lifestyles so that they nonetheless were able to satisfy the propensities and passions and lusts of the flesh no matter how low they were. That immediately ought to cause those who are listening to have less respect for the one speaking if he does not practice the fullness and character of what he preaches. For it is ever a true maxim of each and every one of those who would be followers of God. We should strive to practice what we preach as it relates to our standing firmly upon the Word of God. These false teachers, though, taught a very specialized kind of doctrine, it would appear, in which they could engage in any kind of activity, no matter how lewd or lascivious or ugly it may be, and yet proclaim themselves to have a certain specialized knowledge that allowed them to nonetheless maintain a full relationship with God. Such things, my friends, just simply are not to be. Time and again, we are admonished in the Holy Scriptures to notice the error of things like verse 8. Notice Jude verse 8 with me. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. And yet these were supposedly the teachers of these others who were paying heed or attention to them. They defile the flesh. Engaging in activities that in fact caused one to engage in sinful nature, sinful character. They despised dominion. They had no respect or little respect for authority. They speak evil of dignities. The fact that they had little respect for authority led them in fact to even slander or speak evil of those matters that were authoritative, including things related to God. You see, this kind of behavior, Jude himself notes, is so worthy of remark that these false teachers, as they walked after their own lusts, ought to stand out as sore thumbs of those not to be followed. Notice how the Bible addresses these other matters just opposite for you and me. 
Should you and I, in fact, live in a low kind of lifestyle, allowing the culture of the day to determine what is noble and right for us? Of course not. Peter, in fact, wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The opening words of that verse, be sober. That is, you display good judgment. You display noble, proper judgment, right thinking, correct decision-making process. Furthermore, notice with me also in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Here, as we note the last four verses of that beautiful chapter, Paul, the inspired apostle, directly listed himself as a powerful example. Notice that he said that he, in fact, ran a race, the Christian race. But notice he said that I must buffet my body, lest I also myself become a castaway. Point is, Paul too still needed to exhibit proper thinking, correct judgment, lest he himself should be led astray by the powerful workings of that diabolical demon, Satan himself. The thought is, you and I then must not walk after the fleshly lusts and propensities of our bodies. Rather, we know the body must be taken care of, but there is a higher calling in life. That higher calling is, of course, the gospel era, the thought of eternal life and spiritual things to be attained thereto. This matter of walking according to one's fleshly lusts, we noted there Paul said, I buffet my body. But how often do we read in the other parts of the Scriptures the fact that those fleshly lusts lead us to remember what we studied two Sundays ago in 1 John 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And thus, according to John, should we pursue that which is solely of the world and hence not according to that revealed by God? His answer is a resounding no, isn't it? I've concluded that particular screen by asking you to note the firm conclusion we can reach. In light of the fact that Jesus said, many are walking down the pathway leading to eternal destruction, but there's few traveling that straight and narrow roadway that leads to life, Matthew 7, 13 and following, may we understand that following the many will invariably lead us to the wrong place. We must never allow society to determine what we think is wrong and right. That's determined solely by God's Word. A long time ago, the blessed author himself, through the nature of the Holy Spirit, set forevermore the standard of right and wrong. No wonder Paul said, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Or as the American standard renders that, evil companionships corrupt good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, then stands forevermore as a timeless lesson, encouraging us to ever be sober and to let God's Word determine, not walking after our own lusts, but the nature of properness and rightness in God's sight. In the third place, in addition in this text, notice what else these false teachers did. The kind of lifestyle that they led. They mouthed great swelling words. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? To mouth great swelling words means to speak pompously or arrogantly. 
And in so doing, notice that it's so easy for those of that day to have done that, as well as even for those perhaps of our own day, especially in light of verses 8 and 10. We read verse 8 earlier, but would you now read with me verse 10 of the book of Jude? But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Though it ought not be, it is so easy for many who are in fact bold to speak against things of which they truly are ignorant. They don't even know what they're talking about, and yet they have the audacity to mouth great swelling words concerning it, and often in their eloquence and in the confidence that they exhibit, they actually lead many people astray. Jude was concerned these false teachers would do that very thing to those to whom he wrote. And thus he reminded them they don't even know that of which they speak. Ought not you and I then take great warning as it regards to those to whom we listen? We should understand that there are many in our world who speak powerfully, boldly, confidently, and with great assertion, and yet, when it comes to matters of eternal import, they truly are ignorant about that of which they speak. It reminds me of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. In the days of the long ago, no finer exhibition of how one ought to speak was ever given in all of God's Word. That noble prophet had been called by Ahab and Jehoshaphat to appear before them and make statements about the, whether God had given his credence, his approval to the war that they were entering. In verse 14, Micaiah just simply said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith, that will I speak. What a great testimony for not only himself, but those of all time, if they would simply speak what the Lord gives them to speak, what he through his word has revealed for them to declare. That idea should, of course, rest upon you and me as well. And didn't Peter state it so greatly? First Peter 4:11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. The thankfulness then that we ought to have that we might be led correctly and rightly by those who proclaim God's truth is truly a great blessing indeed. Maybe in haste we can note the final point. We've looked at three characteristics of these false teachers and they have each been good lessons for how we ought not to behave ourselves. The same will be true of our fourth one. As the verse closes in the New King James translation again, it made note of flattery. What does the Bible say about that, and how does it relate to the means of activity of these false teachers? First of all, we each, by our own experience, are aware of what flattery is. It is that spoken statement to someone, whether it is believed or not, the intent of which is to bolster the confidence and the disposition of the one to whom it is spoken. But that very description has problems for the child of God. For after all, notice easily what flattery is able to accomplish. It can accomplish great personal advantage. How often do we hear or use the phrase, butter him up? We do things, say things, so that we might hope to gain advantage from that person at some later time. That's often what is done in the workplace, at school, various community activities and organizations. In Proverbs 19, verse 6, it is even there affirmed what flattery can do. It can work great personal advantage. 
question is, how correct is it? Does God approve of the motives of flattery? I would submit to you that at its very basic level, flattery is lying. For again, notice, it is saying that which truly isn't believed only for the purpose of gaining subsequent personal advantage, even if it is believed. Quite often it is spoken in such a way that it is not of the character of that which is ultimately true. For after all, quite often that which is said in flattering someone is basically not true. It is exaggerated. And exaggerations are not mere stretching of truth because truth can't be stretched. Maybe some other passages say that more clearly and also more to the point. In Psalm 36, verse 2, as well as Psalm 12, verses 2 and 3, there we have a direct example of this matter of flattery, and it is condemned. Notice another passage in Proverbs 26, verse 28. I would ask that you read that one especially with me, as it seems so strong and potent. Proverbs 26, verse number 28. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. A flattering mouth worketh ruin. That only leads us to notice the text in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 and following, where there the inspired apostle Paul made note of the thankfulness he felt for being entrusted with the gospel, but the flattery that was often employed by others was not something that he condoned or, or in fact, approved of. Furthermore, in Galatians 1, verse 10, Paul there said he was not one who sought to please men. Paul didn't flatter or butter up those about him. He said, I am the servant of Christ, and to do that I cannot be the servant of men. Finally, in Ephesians 4, 25, we notice that the very character of lying is itself a condemned thing. To conclude that point of our lesson, May we be very careful in our expression of those things that are on our heart and not simply say that which we don't believe in hopes of having returned more beneficially to us, for that flattery is not condoned by God. This lesson we've considered this morning, then, as it relates to these false teachers, leads us to the point of summarizing it. These four things that we have learned today... We've learned about the evil of being a chronic murmurer and complainer. We have noted also the evil associated with walking according to our own sinful fleshly lusts. Thirdly, we noted the evil associated with speaking arrogantly without knowledge, that is, in ignorance. Finally, the evil associated with flattery. In noting the way that God has revealed these matters, it leads us to then state the beautiful nature of obedience to the purity of the gospel. It might be that there's one or more present within the sound of my voice this morning that's not a faithful child of God. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel initially. Perhaps in understanding the words of the songs today or the prayer or text that we've studied, you know that the Son of God died for you and you know that you need to become a faithful follower of His. Jesus made that relatively simple in that you believe upon Him, believe the words of the Holy Scriptures, that He is the only begotten Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, understanding that they crucified the very Son of God Himself. What's more, confess His glorious name as the Lord and Master henceforth in your life and happily, joyously be immersed 
baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in doing that today, not only would we be, would we be happy to do so, we'd rejoice with you. And furthermore, if you have become a faithful member but no longer are, you've allowed Satan to inch his way into your life, and you have perhaps begun to exhibit some of these characteristics that we've studied today. Turn aside from them at once. Turn back to the Son of God. Turn back to the truth and be made whole. If we could assist you in doing that by prayer today, we'd be happy to do so. If either of these things is a need of your life, will you not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?